You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, Covenant Hope. If you have a Bible, grab it, turn to James chapter 2. Guests, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. We are going to continue in our series uh, in the book of James, which we have titled Our Faith in Action. And it is our practice to walk through books of the Bible together because we believe that God has spoken to us in His Word in the Bible. We want to come and hear what God has to say, not what I have to say. And so if you don't have a Bible today, there should be a black one in front of you. And you can grab it and turn to page 1072. And as we start this morning, I think a great place for us to think about and consider is what our mission is as a church family. It's written on the wall in the back. There are other things talking about in the foyer. Who we are called to be, our website and other places. We try to talk about this is who we are at Covenant Hope church and who we are and what we're doing is that we covenant together to grow mature disciples who impact their world for Christ that's our mission that's what we've been called to it's what Jesus lays before us and here's the deal that that mission statement implies action it implies doing something with the faith that we have received in Jesus Christ. Jesus did not take us up immediately when we, when we placed our faith in Him, did He? Now He left us here to continue the work of the kingdom, which is to make disciples. And we as a church, we gather every week to worship this good God, our God the Father, our God Jesus the Savior, and God the Spirit who indwells us, who unites us together. And so this mission for us implies that we are working towards God's ends and God's ultimate goals. And we know that, as Nate even read in Colossians 1, that the goal for us is to be sanctified, to look like Jesus, to be different than we used to be, to actually grow in our faith. And I think today that our text speaks directly to how we are called to grow and walk in our faith. And so as we walk through the text today, here's what we're going to see. James demonstrates that faith without works is useless and isn't able to save. And if you are a disciple today, if you have called on the name of Jesus this morning, this is what... It's what we're called to do. As disciples, we display saving faith through our actions. We display saving faith through our actions. And as James, he's now shifted to the middle section, to the body of his letter, this passage stands at the center of his argument. Those who follow Jesus are redeemed people who demonstrate the sanctification, the transformation, the change 
that they have experienced. James is very concerned about the lives of believers in some form or fashion and how they walk daily. How is their lives described? What are the actions that they take? So, James starts this passage with a question. And that question is going to be on the screen for you. And it, this question gets at the heart of this section, this passage. And it governs this, this section. The question is, what is true and saving faith? What kind of faith can save you? Can save me? Look at, look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Here's the question. Can such faith save him? This question is at the heart of this passage. And so let me explain a couple of things. James, he asks, what good is it? But what's the profit? What do you gain by having a faith without works? If you were to look at your 401k or your Roth IRAs or whatever savings account you have, and if you see that it's not the, what you have invested in hasn't actually given any product, what are you going to do? You're probably going to move that money. What kind of faith, James says, have you placed? What, what does it gain for you? And he says if someone claims, they say with their words, with their mouth, to have faith. And James, here, this is the only time in this verse that this is the kind of faith that James is talking about. This faith is a saving faith, a full orb trust in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But look then, he then shows us, but it doesn't have works. Better, and we need to understand, as we, some of us may come from uh, different backgrounds. Some of you may have been raised in different, uh, we might even call different parts of Christianity. And so we may, it's easy to be confused about works. And so what we need to understand this as action, as things that are deeds before other people. This is not the law of Moses. This is not works to save us. This is accomplishments out of being changed. This is grace and mercy on display. And James, he ends with that question. Is such faith without works, is it able to save us? And this salvation is not just something that happens when you accept the gospel. James, remember, he's been talking through this letter. This salvation is both the present salvation and future salvation. It contains all of it. Not just now that we now have been saved in Christ, but we will be saved in a, for a judgment later on that we'll be actually in front of, of God and we will stand with Christ because He has given Himself for us. And so this question, it, it brings James to a, a spot in his letter where now he's going to actually, what are these three kinds of faith that he talks about? And as we walk through the, the, the rest of the passage, he's going to compare and contrast these three different kinds of faiths. 
And so first, if we look here in verse 15, we're going to look at faith without works. Look there at verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? James provides us a hypothetical situation, an if scenario to answer his own question by showing us that faith without works means something. Meaning that the situation is possible or that it's already happened in the churches that he's writing to. And we must not read this and think we would never do this. We must hear what James is saying. And there's tension in the text, in the passage, in the really through the whole uh, first part of James up to this point. Right? He's talked about the poor now three times, the helpless three times. There are those in need. Right? Last week we saw that there are those who are poor, but we shouldn't favor the rich. But at the end of the day, we should meet the needs of those who are in front of us and no way elevating those things. But we should rightly hold that these people, were not, their needs were not being met with also saying that we are called to love everyone. And I know that there's been good discussion this week about how do we do this well? How do we not elevate one or the other? And I think Acts 6, where the, where the first deacons were called, helps us. There was a group of the, of the church that was saying, we're, our needs are not being met. So what did the church do? The apostles, they said, select people to take care of these issues. And the issues are met. And the church, it grows out of that. So may we not look at this and, and over-spiritualize it. But may we also not look at this and say, well, I'm not going to meet that need. We come to this, James holds hold this out to us in tension. Because this example matters to him. Because there are people that he's writing to that have their needs that are not being met. And he uses it to show us this is what faith without works looks like. And James describes a situation, look there, he says it's a person without clothes. Meaning they were potentially naked, but most likely they were not dressed for the occasion. They didn't have the right clothes on for the weather, or maybe their clothes were raggedy and old. But they also lacked daily food. This means that they lacked the food needed for a sustained life. They were constantly hungry. James clearly describes them as poor, and we would consider them as the homeless in our area. Maybe a potential comparison in our day and time would be refugees or immigrants. How do we care for them? How do we love them? How do we walk with them through difficult circumstances? And so notice the illustration, he says, and one of you, someone in the community, someone who has been changed by God, would say to them, someone potentially in the church family, and this person of faith encounters this homeless person, but what do they say? What do they say to them? Go in peace, stay warm, be well fed. This could be a, a form of goodbye. Say, hey, you know, hey, may your needs be met today. Maybe it's a, a prayer that God would meet their needs. 
or it could have been even a blessing. May God grant you the needs that you have. But notice that these are words and they lack action. No need is met by these words. Although it is true, this person still lacks. These words are actually a cover for non-action. They ring hollow in the face of real need. They can even be insulting. And in the end, raise questions about the believer who is saying these things. Remember that James is highly influenced by the Sermon on the Mount. And these verses bring to mind, the way that James writes them, bring to mind the Lord's Prayer. When he says, give us today our daily bread, that we may not be in need and not have too much. And so I think it would be right for us to ask, well, how does God meet these needs? James clearly believes that there are needs that we all have. In particular, there's needs of these people who are helpless. How does God answer that prayer? Does God lower food down from heaven? No. At least I haven't seen that. Does God just, does it just happen to be out and free for everyone? No. How does God meet these needs? By us. We care for one another. We love one another. Faith, true faith is demonstrated in action. God's people are an active people. Think about Acts 2 when the church was sharing all things so that no one was without. So no one was in need. So what does James think about this situation? Look at verse 17. In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. This is the first of three times that James will tell us that faith without works is dead. And after that, James, he walks through using this example as a way to show us that faith without works, he concludes, is not real or true saving faith. He calls it dead. Think of this faith as different faith than he talks about in verse 14. This faith is not the kind of faith that Paul talks about throughout his letters. The moral of the illustration is that this kind of faith, words with no actions, are not able to save. What he's saying is that person who said these things is not demonstrating what faith is really about. Why though? James says it does not have works, which could be summed up as a total change life. There's evidence that this person is different. They are different than who they used to be. They have experienced true and saving faith. It produces real and tangible action. Transformation has taken place in our lives. This is why we talk about making mature disciples who are being transformed into the image of Christ so that our our heads are changed, we have knowledge, but it doesn't just stay up here. It reaches our hearts and it reaches our hands. So that we're motivated to demonstrate the love and kindness of our good God. That we look like Jesus. What is one of the most held up reasons why people do not consider Christianity as maybe a solution to the problems in our world? What's one of the biggest reasons? Hypocrites. 
right? We say something with our mouth, but don't demonstrate it with our lives. And at some level, church, let me be very clear. Until Jesus comes back, all of us are going to struggle and we're going to sin. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we constantly say one thing and live another. And we must not be these people. We must be real and visible, showing the growth and showing action. And that only happens when we're real with each other and we say what we're struggling with and we confess our sin and we walk and encourage each other together. It's the only way that this is going to take place, that we demonstrate the real change. And James, he says that this faith is dead. What he means is defective. It's useless. It's inactive. What would, you, if you, what would you do if you bought something from the store and it was defective? You would take it back, wouldn't you? You wouldn't, you wouldn't keep it. You would take it back. James says this faith is worthless and you, need, and you need to get rid of it. It does not accomplish the purposes that was intended. It is not able to save you. And it's useless to serve others. James, in other words, is arguing that this kind of faith has it's just been described as not just merely outwardly inactive, but inwardly dead. James is not saying that these works, though, save us in no way. What James is saying is these works flow from our salvation. Consider the Israelites. When they receive the law of God. Moses, they receive the Ten Commandments. Moses receives the other 620 some odd laws. He comes down and he gives this to the Israelites. But what preceded God giving those commands? Him saving them from Egypt. God had already saved them. And this is what a saved people look like. The argument is the same throughout the whole Bible. God saves us. He intervenes. And then he says, this is what true and flourishing lives look like. I give you these things because I know this is what's best for you. You demonstrate now what it means to be a saved people. Faith without works is dead. And as disciples, we display our true and saving faith through our actions. Look there at verse 18. We see this second kind of faith, which is faith versus works. Faith versus works. This second examination of faith and works provides James the opportunity to contrast them now. And we must understand what James means by faith and what he means by works. Look there at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So James, as he can, to contrast these two things, he imagines an, a hypothetical opponent. He's like, imagine that I'm having a conversation with someone. And he takes this view of the, this opponent so that we can better understand true and saving faith and faith that is dead and worthless. And this opponent, they say, you have faith and I have works. This statement stresses the debate between faith and works. Some believe you can separate faith and works. James sets up the very argument to hold up, to hold up a biblical view of faith. Which James says can save us. And so James, he responds to this hypothetical question. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. Whenever someone chooses faith or works, James says that true faith is demonstrated by our works. There's a connection. And remember, these works, we must think of action. 
not works of the law. Our faith must be accompanied by works. James explains that the true test of genuine faith is the product. That works is the product that come from a changed life. You've heard the phrase, actions speak louder than words. We all know this to be the case. James is not saying anything that we don't at some level understand. Actions speak louder than words. Now look at verse 19. He responds, You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe. And they shudder. James uses an extreme example to make his point. You, we, me, we believe. Right? A word play on faith. That God is one. This comes from Deuteronomy 6. This is where Israel is given the Shema, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then out of that flow specific ideas and commands. So Israel receives this, and it is the basic belief for an Israelite. Like if you are in Israel, you know this statement. Your Lord, your God is one. It would be like us talking about, well, Christ is God. This would be the 101 Sunday school answer. And James says, I need you to hear me. James says, you believe in God. Congratulations. Good for you. That's not it. If we believe that Jesus is God, and many even call Him Lord as He does in in Matthew 7, He says, many will call me Lord, Lord on that day, but they do not know me. We can say the right thing. We can know the right thing. But does that save us? How much of contemporary Christianity judges authentic religion on the basis of emotional experiences or knowledge that's produced? And not by practical living. Not by the fruit that our faith produces. But wait. Wait just a second. Look there. James says that even the, even the demons believe. If you were to walk through the four gospel accounts, every time Jesus encounters a demon, they know who he is. There's no question. When he shows up, they're either scared, they ask, when he, uh, especially when he meets Legion in Mark uh, 5, right? There's a bunch of demons, and they, they have to ask Jesus for, for permission. Can you send us to the pigs? Don't destroy us. They know who exactly Jesus is. They know Him. And they even know Him after the resurrection in Acts 19. But just because they know Him doesn't mean they have faith in Him. We all would agree that demons don't have faith in Jesus, right? Just because they have knowledge of Him doesn't mean they have love and affection for Him. Jesus said, if you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. This is what love and obedience do together. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. As C. Leslie Milton puts it, it's a good thing to possess an accurate theology. But it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. It doesn't matter what you know until it's actually changed you. 
You can have good theology, but if no affection for Jesus, what good is it? And that's what James is saying to us. You may believe in God, you may, you may know that He is there, but that must create a deep longing in our hearts and affections and love for Jesus. If not, it's worthless. Faith apart from works, which James here is just talking, you know, He's saying faith, just knowledge, will not save us. If we believe in Jesus Christ only like the demons, we will have lots of information, but no transformation. Jesus is where we find faith that actually produces change. And James shows us that faith without works is useless. Look there at verse 20 real quick. Are you willing to learn faith without works is useless? You can know all the stuff in the world. You can know all the Bible. You can read it all. You can know the best doctrine in the world. It doesn't matter if you do not love and follow Jesus. As disciples, we display our saving faith through our actions. Now let's look at our, the third faith that James brings up. Faith with works. Look there, verse 20. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Again, James answers his own question. But this time he stresses a couple different ideas. He, he calls this hypothetical person a senseless person. Right? This is the fool in the Proverbs. Throughout the Proverbs, there's this compare and contrast of the wise Wisdom versus the fool. And this is exactly who James sets this up as. The fool is stubborn, hard-hearted. The fool is the opposite of wisdom. And also the fool knows, right? We see this in the Proverbs. They know they have access to the same information, but they're not moved to action. And he asks them, are you willing to be shown? Are you willing to learn? Do you care to know the truth? Are you willing to know it and believe it? But what can you learn? All right, there's a play on words here. That faith without works is workless. It doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't do anything for us. Faith without works is workless. There's nothing that we can hang our hats on. Now James, he'll provide two examples though of what true and saving faith looks like. Faith with works. He's going to give us Abraham and he's going to give us Rahab. So first let's look at verse 21 and see Abraham. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? This first example would have caught the attention of every person because remember these are Jews that James is writing to they would have known immediately who James was talking about. Abraham was their ancestor. And James explains that Abraham is justified, I mean, he's to be shown justified in the end, the final judgment. Right? He's justified then. Don't mix up how James uses justified and how Paul uses justified. Paul uses it to describe our position before uh, God in Christ. James uses it to describe our practice of loving God because of Christ. Why do I think that? 
Well, look at, the, look at what he says. He says the offering of Isaac. One of the most well-known Old Testament passages that God told Abraham that he was going to be the father of many. His wife was barren. So God promises this. And he waits for a long time. He tries to take action in his own hands. But God fulfills the promise, gives him a son, they name him Isaac. And what does God ask him to do? Are you willing to give him up for me? Do you trust me enough? That's, where, that's what James is getting at. It's going to be on the screen. Let me read to you Genesis 22.5. This is when Abraham is going up with Isaac to the mountain. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand he took the fire and the knife and the two of them walked on together. But notice the end of verse 5. What does he say? We will go to worship and what? We will come back to you. That doesn't sound like a father who is worried about his son knowing what he's about to do. Hebrews 11 helps us understand this. It's going to be on the screen too. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, yet he was offering his one and only son, to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced throughout Isaac. Saying God had promised him to have a nation, that there were going to be people that came through his family. Sacrificing your own son doesn't get that work, does it? That doesn't produce a whole nation for you. Verse 19. He considered God to be able to even raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. James tells us in verse 21 that faith, that this work and action of Abraham to be willing to sacrifice his son was the instrument of his faith in God's ability to, say what, to do what he said he was going to do. Maybe even raise Isaac from the dead. This is the kind of faith that Abraham had. And that faith produced the willingness to even give up his most precious son. He trusted God's promises. And James further explains, like there at verse 22. You just see that faith was active together with his works. And by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. James uses Abraham to show us that faith and action go together. We cannot separate them. They are not opposed. Abraham is shown to be righteous through his actions based on his faith. Faith was actually working the entire time in the situation. Faith isn't confined to conversion. We don't just have faith when we place it in Jesus at our salvation. No, our faith is working it's, an, it's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's an active force in our lives that causes us to live like Christians ought to live. It produces fruit and leads to transformation. In fact, faith and works together, they assist one another. Or they both need each other. We cannot separate them. That a true and mature faith is one that produces the life that it believes it can. This complete and mature faith is proven. Right? We can see it. 
And it reaches its goal by doing what God asks. Christian maturity is living like a Christian ought to. I found this quote this week from Douglas Moo, who's a biblical scholar. He said, It is rather that God's love comes to expression, meaning it reaches its intended goal when we respond to His grace with love towards others. So also Abraham's faith, James suggests, reaches its intended goal when the patriarch did what God was asking him to do. His faith was the most mature and most complete when he was willing to give up everything to trust God. When it doesn't make sense. And the scripture, it says, was fulfilled. That's what James says in speaking about Abraham and God. Because Abraham believed God, believed the character and ability of God, then it was revealed that Abraham truly believed. And this belief led Abraham to action to being credited with righteousness, which he didn't have. James is not saying that Abraham was righteous, therefore God saved him. No, God had already promised him. And out of that, Abraham responded. It's like, Ash and I, we have our home mortgage. And that mortgage is with uh, BB&T, now Truist. And when I go online, I check it, it's still there every day. Unfortunately, right? I'm like, man, couldn't somebody just wipe that away? That's exactly what God does to Abraham. Because God has promised him, and Abraham had faith in those promises, that righteousness was credited to Abraham's account, which was in the red, it was in the negative. In the same way, when we accept Christ, we have a debt that could not be paid. When we go and check it, it cannot be paid for. But when we place our faith in Christ, it's wiped away. And no longer does it say in sin, Dead as an enemy of God, it says, righteous and holy and a saint. And it goes further. Right? It's not just that you're holy and that you're righteous. Right? This faith, now worked out in righteousness and obedience, has built a relationship. On your account, it also says friend. That's what it says. You are a friend of God. But it's not just that we're mere acquaintances. It's not just that we're like, yeah, I know who God is. No. It's that we are no longer His enemy. That we are no longer opposed to Him. And in fact, God then gives us everything that He's given Jesus Christ His Son. The enemies have been reconciled because of faith. So what's James' conclusion? Look there at verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Alright, let's take a time out. That's a, that's a hard statement, right? Because we've been taught that we don't earn salvation through works. Doesn't that contradict what we know and what Paul says? Let's remember, let's understand the words that James is using in the audience that he's writing to. This justification, this justified, is a final declaration right, to the one who preserves and loves and obeys God to the end. This is not speaking about you were justified before God in your righteousness. That's not what he's saying. It's our faith that's been proven all the way to the end. I love uh, in our equip classes over the, over the last few years, Jay, uh, David has held out this idea that we are saved by faith. And it's God who holds on to us, but it's also those who persevere in faith. And we've heard the phrase, one saved, always saved. And I, I like David's phrase, one saved, always persevering. 
our faith demonstrates that we will be like Christ in the end. And James says, not by faith alone. This is what James means by a bogus faith. Not verse 14, but everything else. Faith without works, faith versus works. That faith is a bogus faith and it cannot save you. Paul says the same thing, doesn't he? Ephesians 4, verse 1, we, we were just there. Walk worthy of your calling. What's the calling? Salvation. Live worthy of the faith that you have. It's exactly what Paul says. And Paul, when he says this, he talks about us having faith in our Lord. What is a Lord? What does that imply? That there's obedience to that Lord. Right? That we actually give our lives to Him. The great Charles Spurgeon said, Holiness is not the way to Christ, but Christ is the way to holiness. In the end, we must see James and Paul not as two, as, as, as the same person, but as two different doctors treating two different patients. Paul is the OB in the family. This is before birth. This is what happens when you place your faith in God, and this is how that works itself out. But James is our pediatric doctor, even our geriatric doctor, the ones I'm going to see these days. Right? They tell us this is how your life should look like based on being born. Paul says this is, what, this is how you get life. James said this is what life looks like after you've been born again. This is what it looks like to have faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 25. It gives us the second example. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? James highlights using Rahab that she differs from Abraham in every way, right? She's a prostitute. She's a Gentile. <laughs> but she's justified just like Abraham is. Why? Because she does exactly the same. She believes and trusts God and her actions show that. James uses these two examples to show us that we fit. Most of us in the room are not as faithful and not as trusting as Abraham would have been with our children, are we? But most of us in the room probably have not struggled to live a life like Rahab did. So all of us have the opportunity because of Christ to live that this all applies to us. That anyone in between who has faith in Christ, can live a life that demonstrates that faith. And James, he concludes in verse 26. He says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Here he raises the final answer to the question in verse 14. He said it three times. Is such faith able to save a person? The answer throughout the whole argument, throughout all the verses has been a resounding no. Faith that does not reveal itself in works, in a changed lifestyle, that glorifies God and seeks His heart for the world, is dead and lifeless, worthless and worthless. In reality, it's not faith at all. It's only in the shell of it. Maybe even a dead corpse. Our faith produces work in our lives. It produces new fruit in us. Why else would we give our lives to this? 
I don't know about you, but if I look over the course of my life over the past uh, 23 years after giving faith to Jesus, I look totally different. Praise God for that. And if we would remember together all the things that God has done, praise God that we are different than who we used to be. Whether it was 20 years ago, 10 years ago, one year ago. Praise God that we are different than who we used to be because we have faith in Christ. But as we end in thinking about this, I want to be careful. How do we not fall into legalism? How do we not fall into this idea, well, if I just do works and I'll be saved, because that's not what James is saying. We've got to get to Jesus. We have to understand our Lord and our Savior. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son as a sacrifice to God. But God didn't allow him to do that, did he? Abraham was willing, but God did not let him do that. So what did God do? God did not hold back His Son for us. God did not spare Him. Because God loved us, He offered His one and only Son, the one that He would cherish. He sent Him into the world to die for you and me. That's the kind of God that we have. That He would not hold back, that He would generously give even His best, even His best Son on our behalf. And if we look throughout the gospel accounts, we see that Jesus comes from the line of Abraham. And even Rahab is mentioned in that genealogy. So yes, God offered His own Son for us. We also have a Savior who comes out of the brokenness. There are many broken people in the line of Jesus. And now He's taken those broken people and placed us into his family and that's the only way that that takes place we will never work enough you will never do enough you will never be righteous enough apart from christ but christ when we place our faith in him gives us everything will you pray with me god i ask that you would make us into these kinds of people that james talks about that we would not fall into the trap of believing that we just need to know the right things or say the right things. Would we not just come every week and just hear the right words and think that we're right with you? May we examine our lives that we would see that there is fruit out of trusting and having faith in Christ. Would we be the kind of people that demonstrate our faith together, here, and also in our jobs, our communities, our, everything that we do. Would we be the kind of people that demonstrate a true and saving faith? God, if there is someone in the room today that says, I, I don't know if I have that kind of faith. Would you press them? Would you work in them so that they may submit their lives to you? All of it. God, we need you to work in these ways. We need you to work in our church so that we may be a lighthouse to the nations, so that we may be the people that you've called us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.